0: Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over, minute by minute, the greatest adventure movie Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnson movie, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of tvdads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, senior editor
1: for the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and lifelong uh, airplane
0: geek. And we are already up to minute five. This is a great first week, I think. And uh, we're this is this is going to be the episode where we finally climb out of the opening credits, and uh, so we're, we've got some major league credits coming up here. The uh, the first title that we see in the first couple of seconds as. Uh, the GB is starting to circle uh, Chaplin Field is produced by Lawrence Gordon, Charles Gordon and Lloyd Levin and these guys are powerhouses in the uh, action adventure movies Uh, uh, the stuff that they've been uh, let's let's start with uh, uh, Larry Gordon who uh, he started working with uh, Aaron Spelling, he learned learned his trade uh, with a TV master, Uh, went to work for uh, American International Pictures which is a lot of uh, low budget to mid budget kind of drive in movies and then through all that he wound up as president of 20th Century Fox, uh, oh, really? In the I, didn't, yeah. I didn't
1: realize, I didn't realize he'd gone that far. That's spectacular.
0: Yeah, he, he came in there and, and got, got, got together with that stuff. Uh, he did have some, uh, he was just in time to green light, uh, Die Hard, the, die, the first of the Die Hard movies. So that was his, uh, his big claim to fame. Uh, then he, he split from, uh, from, uh, 20th Century Fox and started his own company at Largo Entertainment. They were, uh, in big with, uh, bunch of international styled movies. They did a lot of uh Oscar bait, I think would be the best word to describe it. They did things like Field of Dreams, uh, Point Break, Mulholland Falls, G. I Jane. It, it, and that was that was most of the nineties. I mean he had some really monster hits back in the nineties with his brother Charles Gordon, who uh is also listed there, the second guy in the credits, uh, right after Larry. You know, it's it's just amazing when you when you just see some of his uh some of his work. But mostly he focuses on uh, very personal dramas very you know he doesn't do like epic non non-fictions but he does uh he does these uh you know single person center center protagonist characters uh of which this is one of them i guess you, i mean this is mostly focused on cliff and his relationship with everybody else around him but cliff is kind of at the center of the web there and we're uh the third name on there lloyd levin uh lawrence gordon was in his uh, kind of toward the end of his career he was in his 50s and 60s although he's still doing some stuff he's in his he's in his 80s as we're recording this. Uh, Lloyd Levin uh, back then was in his 30s. He worked uh, he was the producer on Die Hard. He executive produced uh, Die Hard 2. A lot of the uh, follow-ups he did uh, Die Hard 2, he did Predator 2. Um he did one of my favorite movies. I wish we could do a, a movie minute about Mystery Men. Uh, oh, no and, kidding. Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, oh, he was an he was EP on on uh, Mystery Men. It, so wasn't he involved with uh, with Watchmen as well? That's right. Yeah, all all of these with uh, so, with Universal, and uh, gotcha. he also, he did uh, United ninety three was probably one of the few nonfiction ones that he worked on. So, uh, oh, interesting. A lot of a uh, lot of action, a lot of activities in his in his movies. They're not uh, they're not sleepers and uh so we're watching the we're watching the gb at, at, while all of these things are going on the gb's flying around the back of what is the i guess that's an air race route at uh, at chaplin field we're seeing it going by one of the pylons there the big red and white pylons
1: right and um, uh <clears throat> you know that it's that tradition of those uh you know that red and white pylon you know continues to this day at the reno air races uh held every september down in nevada and i forgive me i'm looking at this minute again it goes by pretty quickly i think we get better shots of it in other minutes but uh you know at least one of those pylons is labeled bendix yeah and uh um, i can't recall if we get a really good glimpse at it or not um but anyway the uh you know this area would have been the start of the the, the Bendix race from uh, from Burbank to Cleveland for the National Air Races and we've talked about the National Air Races in an earlier episode but it's it's a nice touch thinking about uh, about this being potentially uh, a launching point for the for the Bendix race the cross country race to get to the Nationals
0: yeah still still trying to figure out I mean I'm assuming that it's either the Burbank Airport that we're looking at here the basics of the of the Burbank right. Airport or or if it's Van Nuys Airport that's another another possibility right which if, at the time would have been metropolitan airport
1: now if, if we're establishing this as the start of the bendix it it should be burbank as that started in burbank uh every year except there were two years it, it actually went uh, started on the east coast went new york to cleveland but otherwise that bendix race was uh, was uh, burbank to cleveland which seems like kind of an odd direction to go like you're in burbank why would you be in a hurry to get to cleveland all yeah. places. But uh, it, it was uh, the Nationals, as we've talked about, a big, big deal in aviation at this era.
0: Wow. Uh, my closest I've been to this was the uh, the Bendix Diner outside of Teterboro Airport. It's been a big <laughs> popular diner still to this day. Um but uh, it's again, we're back with this beautiful, uh, beautiful camera work uh, and editing. The the editing is just fantastic, going back and forth. Uh, we we have that that one little isolated spot of P V watching what's going on, keeping a careful look at it, while Goose and Skeets in the back are just kind of chatting with each other about how great the, the takeoff was. Right. And uh, we're looking at uh, uh, Cliffs coming back in for a low level pass, and an extremely low level pass. I mean, it's. I'm thinking it's about three or four feet when he finally, uh, when he finally is leveled off down the runway there.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a point there where it, it almost looks even closer than that and he he's got that nice turn going at first which looks like he's uh, going to do what we'd call a banana pass a nice curving pass but then you know levels it out and like you said the editing cutting back and forth the continuity uh between the real GB flying by and then uh, looking at uh, Bill Campbell in the back of the Waco uh, is really, really sharp you know there 's one shot. Let me get to the second of it here it 's i think it 's the first time we cut back to him as he comes around the corner on the pass um You can actually see a shadow pass over the cockpit from the uh uh it 's got to be from the upper wing of the uh of the waco as he 's making that turn yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> you know it's <clears throat> the Rocketeer is probably not the best movie. Ever made, or the most technically perfect movie ever made, but I don't know that there's a movie for which I have more affection, and it's uh, it's hard for me to get in there and find you know any little thing that feels uh, that feels wrong. It's almost a, it's almost a challenge because you know there's got to be something I can I can point out, but but boy, I just adore every second of this movie.
0: Just such yeah, it's it, it's such a a love affair with 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 flight and. Every you know, it, it, when you're watching this movie a minute or even you know frame by frame, right. every single frame of this movie it just looks like a painting. Just the GB's flashing its uh, its tail, uh, you know its tail number on as it as it's coming by, and it's just it's just a gorgeous thing seeing seeing the the nice the the beautiful sky the the morning light of everything.
1: Well, the the color palette always amazed me too because you've got sort of the desert scrub and you've got kind of a rough airport and the, the buildings are a bit a bit drab um you know even the you know the wardrobe is all sort of fairly muted but then you've got this beautiful yellow and black airplane um, and then the other airplanes that we see for uh, around the airport for set dressing we've certainly talked about some of them before but you know right as he's making that pass he gives the thumbs up he looks back uh, you know Peavy's there cheering him on with a thumbs up you know you've got You've got those two airplanes right behind them there. You just get a glimpse. It's a Stinson uh, Stinson Junior. It's an SM eight A, SM8A. and then behind it, you just see the nose of this blunt this blunt blue nose airplane, and that's a, uh, a replica of a French racer called the Cadrone C four sixty. And that airplane actually uh, uh, actually won the Bendix race in I believe it was nineteen thirty six. So in the continuity of the film, it was the it was the winner two years ago.
0: Wow. And and all these airmen are probably just wandering around the field, too. I mean, this is their, you know, at least their home port for the time being.
1: Sure, exactly. So it it makes sense. You might have some competitors there. But, you know, the competition was fierce, but there was also, you know, you imagine there was a pretty strict camaraderie among these, uh, among these early pilots as well. And, you know, they weren't above helping each other out. So it would make sense. You would see uh, maybe as we're gearing up toward these races— you would see some of the other airplanes around. Now the Stinson wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be racing, certainly not in the same category as the others. But it's very, yeah, you know, it's very much period appropriate. And then there, there's and, um, one other airplane we spot in this scene, which we've we've discussed before. That's that gorgeous. Uh, it's it's a blurry shot. It's blinking. You'll miss it as the GB roars by. Uh, but it's that uh, Travel Air, excuse me, Travel Air mystery ship. So right another... the,
0: the beautiful red 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 craft across there next to the yeah. hangar. Um, yeah, it's it's, it's just a, it's an amazing collection. I mean, it's a good, it's almost great that they made this movie as an excuse to show show all these planes off and, and you know, up on a big screen. Absolutely. I had read somewhere the, uh, these low passes and things like that. They had limited the number of times the GB could land because the, uh, the landing gear is quite fragile and uh, it takes, it, it takes quite a pounding when it lands, especially on a, you know, on a gravel or you know a, a, a packed packed clay field, they were worried about uh, wrecking the, uh, the 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 wheels on it. So they they kind of limited the number of uh, landings that they did with the with the plane during the shoot.
1: Right. Yeah. The the biggest thing you'd be fighting. I mean, number one, it's uh, it's an extremely challenging airplane to fly, a challenging airplane to land. We we've, we've talked about that a little bit when we first talked about the about the GB and uh, you know construction of the replica and things like that, but. Um, my educated guess is one of the biggest things they'd be worrying about number one just let's just minimize the number of landings because it's because it's difficult and it's a squirrely airplane we don't want to risk it but also uh that uh that landing gear would be especially susceptible to any kind of side load so if there's a little bit of wind if you're not tracking perfectly straight on landing you know it could could buckle although i i have a sense that also um you know, getting getting shot at by gangsters uh, can make landing <laughs> difficult too. But that just feels like foreshadowing of some kind.
0: I, I would think, yeah. Uh, so if, uh, we finally get to our, our 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 last, thankfully, our our last uh, uh, credit here, which is directed by Joe Johnson. And Joe Johnson is just hero of great movies. He started out working for Lucas, working on uh, he he did a lot of technical direction and or art direction for Empire Strikes Back. So he has quite a background in special effects, and he also seems to have a great role. We've 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 talked about this at the very beginning of this film, about how he uh, he doesn't let special effects take over the movie. They're an important part of a lot of his films, but uh, it, mostly he's he's concerned on telling the story. Um, you know, bringing a comic book to life. I mean, it, it, you can right. see when you watch these movies, you can see the set pieces and how he goes from scene to scene to scene and you can you can the story is told visually um he and it's it's just enjoyable and you, you think about other movies that he's made he made, you know the the reason that he did the recent Captain America was because because of the rocketeer he understood how to do a period piece without making it look dated um he he brought forth the, the most important thing to him is the characters um, right. I can't. I, I, I can't stress how great a director Joe Johnson is in terms of being able to, as a storyteller, he knows how to tell a story. Absolutely, and you you
1: mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned Empire Strikes Back, and he did actually do some work on Episode Four as well, The New Hope. He was a, sort of did illustration and design work. Um, I, as a kid, had the um, had the Star Wars sketchbook in my collection. And I think it's since disintegrated, unfortunately, I hunt down another copy. But, but as I recall, that had a lot of his work, uh, work in it as well. And, uh, he did, he dabbled a little bit in, uh, in Battlestar Galactica, uh, when that came around, but, voice uh, so cut his teeth on, you know, on one set of movies that, uh, had a huge impact on me. And of course the Rocketeer, and then many years later, uh, the first Avenger, um, as you said, he knows how to do period pieces without making them feel dated. But he, he knows a lot about uh, about subtle and clever world building too. You know whatever that is, and, and I guess Star Wars. It's a long time ago. I guess that's that's a period piece as well, if you think about it.
0: Yeah, that that that's true. I mean, and he does know like what you're saying about world building. Uh, his first, uh, you know, solo directing thing. A lot of people think of it as a Spielberg movie, but Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was actually directed by Joe Johnson, So oh, that's you could right. Tell- he could yeah. tell a story in an unusual situation right. and still the the people that you cared about, you cared about the characters, you didn't care about the special effects, even though you had, you know, fighting ants and stuff like that. It's it still, in unusual situations, he still manages to bring out the humanity in his characters. Exactly. So really is one of my favorite directors that doesn't let visual effects get in the way of telling a story. <laughs> right. And he did
1: another another favorite of mine that, uh, uh, and I hate to admit it, I always forget that it's him. I just know I, I love the film, although it's not... You know, obviously not a blockbuster like some of the others, but that was October Sky. Yes, and yeah. and, and you as a as a uh, as a rocket scientist of sorts, the aerospace engineer, must uh, must have some affinity for that, just like I do.
0: Yeah, I, I every uh, uh, every October uh, on October fourth, uh, my wife and I watch October Sky. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's terrific. Kind of a kind of a tradition here and uh, as that that's the uh, anniversary of the launch of Sputnik right yeah,
1: uh, Sputnik great, a great telling
0: of, a, a great telling of a story i mean a lot of times we'll watch movies like the right stuff and apollo 13 is the, or well apollo 13 does manage to to uh, bridge the gap but a lot of times they focus on the astronauts which is an important role but the idea that there is a lot of science behind this a lot of people have tested things a lot of people have engineered uh you know mechanical craft that can do these things and do you know do all these amazing things. we kind of think of the the folks on the front lines, but there's there's a lot of folks in the back office that that do these things and and October Sky really focuses on uh, Homer hickam and you know his his high school buddies who wind up being rocket scientists for uh just you know to pass the time and and also to to find their sense of wonder in uh, in an upcoming field right and and, and and managing to tell that story and and make it make it fascinating to general audiences, people who don't know how rockets are made or what they do. He, he manages to lay all this stuff out and build a drama out of uh, what's basically a, a, a technical development.
1: Absolutely. And and more of that great world, build, world building, too, the whole the, the, starting out in the coal mining town and what that must have felt like, what that atmosphere was like. And, uh, you know, respectable, honest work, but a kid who... Really knows he's meant for something very very different and and wanting to get away with that without making it uh making it a, a cliche
0: or a parody of itself okay I'm writing down octoberskyminute.com. skymin dot com register that on our way out today. <laughs> Wow. Well, yes, if if you have, I would ro- strongly recommend to our viewers, if you like The Rocketeer, go watch some of the other Joe Johnson movies, and it's, you can start with uh, October Sky. If you haven't seen it yet, I envy you for having not seen it yet because it's <laughs> going to be an exciting first experience. Finally, out of the credits, well, we do get to, uh, uh, to one credit here that sets the stage. We're saying Los Angeles, 1938. So that kind of puts us in a particular place and time. A lot of people... Uh, don't live in los angeles or think of when you think of los angeles you generally think of hollywood and although this movie does concentrate on a lot of the hollywood aspects of los angeles los angeles is a huge sprawling place it's um i think it it's large it's larger than the state of rhode island so there's a lot of different um climates a lot of different things going on uh, in this in this movie we're talking about two of the major uh, products of california we're talking about aerospace and movies So, but we're also seeing things like uh, farming. We're talking. There's a lot of talks about the the bean fields that were surrounding. You know, everything from Encino to uh, up into the Imperial Valley. A lot of uh, agriculture was going on. Right. Uh, And uh, and the beautiful California countryside. uh, Seeing those rolling hills and things. Just uh, it must have been a great time back then, relatively unpopulated as to today. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: And you you mentioned uh, aerospace, and of course that's huge in this area, Burbank. was the home of Lockheed. And I don't think they were quite calling it Lockheed at this point. They may... Actually, you know, I think they probably were by 38. Uh, it was... And I, I've never... I always struggled with the pronunciation, but it was the the two... Uh, I, I sort of pronounce it Luffheed brothers. And then they stylized it as Lockheed. So they were there. Uh, Manasco was there building airplane engines, uh, built a, a great sort of inline uh, inverted four-cylinder airplane engine. Uh, we mentioned Bendix... Uh, started in automotive parts and brakes and things, but had by uh, by this time had become Bendix Aviation, and that's why they sponsored uh, to promote that brand. They sponsored the Bendix race from Burbank to uh, to Cleveland to kick off the national uh, national air races
0: every year out there. Yeah, so, and then there there was also the uh, the tech well the Texas based uh, oil uh, tooling company that had moved out to California. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. yeah. We'll, yeah we'll get absolutely. into that a little bit later though. But there, yeah, a lot of people were switching over to aerospace to get into this up and coming uh, tech. You know, th- this was the, the Silicon Valley of aircraft. Uh, really, had, uh, had moved moved west, and there was so much activity going on in, in all in the L.A. area. So this is a, an ideal location for this for this film. Absolutely, as it was for the for the comic book.
1: Oh, I was just gonna say uh, too. You know, we've we've talked a lot about the about the GB so far. We have talked about how uh, the GBZ, uh, the yellow and black black one that. Uh, Uh, the movie airplane was, was created as a replica of, you know, that one, the, uh, the Thompson race at the nationals. uh, But that was back in, in 1931. So that's, uh, you know, if there's a, if there's an anachronism in this, in this movie with airplanes go, it's, that's probably about as, about as bad as it gets that we're maybe a few years off in terms of this GBZ being a, being a real contender, um, when by that time the GBS had moved on to the R one and the R two, um, but the uh, you know while well, the Bendix race is the cross country race, the the uh, Thompson race, which we've, we've talked about before, we've, and we were talking just earlier this episode about the pylons, you know, that was a closed course pylon race, so that was much more of a much more of a spectator sport.
0: How close do you have to approach the pylons? I mean, I mean I, you have to stay to the right of them, but I would think that the tighter your turn, the more uh, speed you gain.
1: Right. It's well, it's like anything, you know, it's like any other kind of racing. And, and basically it's as, you know, as close as possible, obviously without, uh, without striking one. Um, you know, now we have, uh, if you've ever seen the Red Bull air races, it's uh, uh, somewhat similar in that it's also a closed course, but it's only one aircraft at a time. And there's some aerobatic components in it, but there's a whole series of pylons and gates that are insanely complicated but the the trick there is that they're inflatable and uh, so it's not uncommon for a pilot to hit one of the pylons because they're that fast and that close but in in the case of the inflatable pylons they just they just deflate and it's there's usually no damage of any kind to the airplane just a just a little bit of pride for the pilot or for the pilot Um, but in cases like uh, in cases like this like racing at reno obviously there's a lot of strategy and there's going high and going low but really the the trick is just what you would think, is let's get as close as we can and make those turns uh, as tight as we can without bleeding off too much energy.
0: On on a race like that, in a regional race, how long would that generally go? I mean, is, the the courses are generally about uh, 10, 10 miles? In.
1: Yeah, so one of the closed-loop courses like that, uh, uh, like, you know, really what, what Cliff is sort of training for and preparing uh, to go off and do, um, it's a 10-mile course. And if I remember right, it was 10 laps, so it's a so it's a hundred mile race and at the time that the the gbz uh won it if i remember right the speed and uh, i think we've talked about this a little bit before the speed was something like 236 240 240 miles an hour which is pretty amazing and and especially given the fact that uh for a time, uh, a couple of different GB models were the fastest airplanes in the world, and and I mean, I don't mean fastest sort of privately owned or civilian airplanes. I mean fastest airplanes, period. Uh, and how strange that must have been for back then. What was the Army Air Corps uh, to see private citizens flying airplanes that are, you know, faster than than their fastest yeah, fighters?
0: Literally drive rings around them. Just, right, uh, fly rings around.
1: Them. It's it's not like today we have many. You know, you and I can't go down to a, down to an airport and rent an airplane and go faster than an F twenty two. That would just be, you know, all but unheard of, or faster than an SR seventy one or or something like that. So it was pretty uh, pretty remarkable at the time. And of course, after World War two, that landscape changed so much with these air races that it really became much more about either ex military aircraft or even current military aircraft operated by military pilots the air force sent uh, flights of three b-47 bombers to compete as a group uh, in the bendix race you know and they just had their own category you still had your piston engine racers like we're seeing here but then you also had the jet bomber category so <laughs> they uh <laughs> the air <laughs> force really
0: like to really like to play yeah it so we we fade out of or well, we we don't fade we suddenly are uh, kind of interrupted by uh, or punctuated by the uh thompson machine gun uh wielding uh lenny who is uh, driving in the back of a a dodge there shooting straight at the camera to get our get our attention right. um so it i mean those you know beautiful thompson machine guns showing uh shooting. Fifty caliber bullets, which are half an inch wide <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: that's a lot I was just going to say two things sort of come to mind here number one uh you pointed out in your synopsis of this minute that uh this is where the opening theme ends, so you know not only we're we getting shot in the face, we're losing that that uh that theme we've talked about uh about yeah. James Warner and the score and stuff, but this is one of my it's one of my favorite pieces of music that whole opening theme is so there's so much brightness and and promise to it uh, as it goes along and it's uh, it's it's just it's a masterstroke to not only have it end right here, but sort of have it you know end in this hail of gunfire to say you know everything we thought was sunny and happy is not necessarily going to going to go all that well for us for for right now.
0: Yeah, it, it, the part the party is over, and yeah, right. and it does end on that. Uh, as far as I can count it was uh, nine key changes through the through that <laughs> piece so that's quite a quite a lot of reading on the part of the uh, orchestra god god bless them for being able to do, do that it's oh, no a that's kidding. a tough that's a tough way to get through but uh yeah so we're, we're watching uh lenny driving away there uh we'll find out that his name is lenny later but uh, the dodge is being chased by a uh, an lapd black and white uh which is a, a ford oh i'm sorry no that, that's that's also a dodge and uh I have it. I have it backwards. Lenny's in the Ford. The LAPD is a Dodge sedan, and then there's another uh, Ford Deluxe that's following up the rear. That's right.
1: As Lenny's in the rumble seat of the of the Ford, and then LAPD are coming in that uh, in that Dodge. Another, you know, more great set dressing, more great, uh, you know, little bits of world building. Cars very very appropriate for the era. I think that I think we decided the uh, FBI vehicle back there is a 38 Ford. So yeah. So of course the feds are driving something brand new, you know. The city cops—it's a year old. It's still pretty good. And bad guys driving a car that's a few years old, but all very appropriate. We're not seeing a sixty-five Mustang or something out of the blue. Wow.
0: And then we we're introduced to uh, to Wilmer, who uh, he's, he's he's not having a good day. He's, you know, no. when you're being chased by both a uh, local and federal uh, agents. You're, you've got you've got a problem, right? Uh, and uh, that Wilmer, of course, is played by uh, Max Grodnick, who. Uh, He's probably best known as Nog from Deep Space Nine. Here, uh, getting to play a human being for a change, <laughs> and uh, he's uh, he's bouncing along with. Uh, we're we're going to talk about a little bit more about this uh, this case that that gets a, a brief a brief scene uh, bouncing along next to uh, uh, poor Wilmer in the in the front seat there. Uh, Lenny, I don't know if they've thought this out very much. It's kind of. Uh, I mean, Lenny's Lenny's trying to get them to back off, but I I don't think he's doing much in the way of uh, of getting uh, getting the the policeman off of his back there.
1: Right, a, a couple of things sort of come uh, popped into my head. Number one, I you know that first glimpse of that authorized personnel only. You know, it's just the the case. <clears throat> if you first see the movie, if you feel like the case could yeah. just say MacGuffin <laughs> right across it, there's, this is obviously this is important and we're all chasing each other about it and we're fighting over it and everything else. But, um, I had a, uh, I had a, a modest law enforcement career a couple of, a uh, couple of lifetimes ago. And, you know, I, I was in a few high speed pursuits. Nobody was ever shooting back at me with a Tommy gun or any other kind of gun. But, uh, um, it did always strike me that, uh, um, you know, what's really going through their mind? Where do they hope to get? Um, are they waiting? Is there like, do they think a timer's going to go off? And if I haven't caught them in 10 minutes, then they just, then we all just, the bell rings, we all go home, you know, as you say, uh, you know, Wilmer and Lenny don't really have an exit strategy. They just want to get, you know, i guess that's why they call it a getaway car they're just trying to get away but but what what really do they hope to achieve yeah i, I was
0: wondering if either uh, wilmer or lenny knew how to fly a plane as they're kind of indirectly heading for uh for Chaplin field so maybe they were thinking you know throw it in a plane and take off or hide you know get a pilot to fly them out but yeah that's a good point it's uh clear you know pretty good thinking on the part of uh of them trying to find another an alternate route of uh, transportation um but we uh, we finally get introduced to the uh, the two FBI agents uh, uh, who are in a, you know fur, furthest back on the on the chase, Fitch and Wo- Wooly, driving. Right. Fitch is uh, yelling at Wooly, and, and also operating a gun because I think he's <laughs> he's also under the mistaken impression that somehow he's going to be able to st- stop somebody with a with a revolver. And uh, right. again, they're, uh we're back. You know, since it is the 30s, everybody's wearing a hat. It seems like uh, outdoors, uh, and uh, both Fitch and Wooly are. Uh, accompanied by uh, really stunning fedoras, um, in my
1: uh, I miss those days. Even though I mean, this happened. This movie takes place 30 years before I was born. I still somehow uh, miss on, those days. On
0: my other show, the Airport Minute, we we talked about fedoras and trilbys and all kinds of things that uh, signaled at the time, or you know, then this was all the way into 1970 that the type of hat that you wore kind of signaled who you were in society. And uh, f- right. f- uh, Fitch, the uh, the fellow in the passenger seat, is wearing a, a rather uh, dapper uh, fedora. He's got uh, very sharp creases on his fedora and uh, apparently, you know, cares about that. He's a bit of a—that that kind of indicates that he's preening a bit. He's very uh, fashion-forward kind of conscious guy. Uh, wooly, wearing a more <laughs> uh, shapeless hat, uh, is— kind of that, that that kind of signals that you're more grizzled you're more uh, you're, you're less concerned about your appearance so it's kind of like it's the equivalent of a five o'clock shadow the way he's wearing his hat and uh it, it's interesting okay. to see that that there are i mean i'm, I'm sure that the uh, the costumers in the art direction here uh, know these kind of signals and and it's kind of odd that we as an audience even though we you know we didn't live in the 30s we still managed to get the signals from the hat of how these guys were or their personalities are determined by how they're how they're wearing their hats it's
1: funny too we don't know uh you know on screen uh and we don't know their names at this point but uh you, but when you say Fitch and Woolly and you ask me you know which one's the which one's the sharp dressed one and which one's a little bit rougher around yeah. the edges it's obvious you know Fitch is uh, Fitch is the uh, Felix Unger and Woolly yeah, is the Oscar yeah, Madison
0: it, it's uh it- <laughs> Maybe not to
1: that extent, and again, but... And,
0: and they're also coming in from a different world. I mean, the guys that we've been seeing so far have been wearing... Uh, you know the the jumpsuits, pretty much the the the, the mechanics uh, One Piece outfits right. and stuff. Now we're yeah. we're getting back to the, into the into the regular world. There, where it was normal to wear a jacket and a tie and a hat, no matter what you're doing, no matter what the no matter what the excitement. This was the uniform of of people in the day. Even uh, you know we're, we're watching uh, Wilmer driving there. He's got on a, a shirt and a tie and a, a rather dapper vest and a and a, and a shanter type uh, cap quite a quite a stylish set for for folks uh nowadays. I mean, I think uh Wilmer would probably be wearing pajama pants and uh <laughs> right. maybe maybe a t-shirt or who knows, we'll see. And it would it would have yeah, probably yeah, a wife yeah. beater yeah. at this yeah, point. Like a band name written <laughs> across the front. So right. we're going we're going to kind of pause here at the end of the week with a with an exciting car chase. Uh but it's been a good first week, I think. This is uh there's a lot of action. Uh we get the beautiful James Horner theme, a lot of introductions going on and we know everything there is to know about the, uh, (laughs) the major, uh, uh, crew working on this, on this movie. So, uh, so let's uh, let's pick this up again first thing Monday morning, uh, if uh, if everybody can join us here. At any... also, you can also join us at any of our uh, our social media uh, places. You can go to Twitter, Rocketeer Minute. You can go to uh, our uh, Bulldog Cafe that's on Facebook just for the Rocketeer's Bulldog Cafe, uh, where everybody gets together and talks about these episodes. And of course, the big site, uh, RocketeerMinute.com, where you can get copies of the Rocketeer available on Amazon. Uh, and all their kinds of neat stuff to read about uh, in this episode and previous episodes, so you can catch up. So, uh, why not join us back here next week as we uh, follow this exciting car chase? The uh, this is kind of the precursor of all those L.A. Uh, helicopter <laughs> shows uh, on uh, on the news in the afternoons in L.A. Uh, so, we'll we'll we'll, find the, we'll watch the granddaddy of them all right here. So, uh, we'll see you next time on uh, the Rocketeer. Until then, over and out. Get him, kid.